Hello and welcome to the Jewish's Podcast, a space for all things Jewish magic, mysticism, and practice. My name is Tso, and I am the creator of Jewish's, a shop, a website, and an online community. Every week, I'm here to talk about my favorite parts of Judaism, especially the magical bits. From discussions of folklore and mythology to deep dives into the practices of our ancestors, I am here to talk about it all. Hello and welcome to the Jewish's podcast. Today we are doing the unthinkable. We are opening the proverbial Dybbuk box and exploring all of the horrors within. I prefer the pronunciation Dybbuk and Dybukim, but you can also say Dybuk or Dybbuks. It does depend. All, as far as I know, are completely fine. While I am sure you are more than happy and excited to hear about how Post Malone fits into this and whether or not he's truly cursed, I think it's best we start back in the very beginning. And no, tragically, that does not start in 2003 when the first Dybbuk box came to the internet. We have to go back and understand what Dybbukim are in the first place. Despite what you might have heard, a Dybbuk is a clinging or a possessive spirit. Literally, it means cleaving or clinging, and the general consensus within the Jewish community is that a dibbik is created when a person has died but is not ready to cross over, or they have crossed over and have returned, whether it be their whole soul or a fragment of their soul, because they have sinned without performing teshuva. Now, I want to preface this by saying that Jewish conceptions of sin are slightly different than what you might be familiar with. Most often, sin is described as missing the mark or walking off the path or causing harm. And teshuva, also sometimes pronounced tshuva, is the act of repentance. And again, repentance has a slightly different conceptualization in Judaism than it may in some other religions. And the way to atonement and repentance is not always as simple as being forgiven by a priest or going, my bad, or saying even a couple prayers. In Judaism, there are clear steps to performing teshuva. When I wrote my original blog post on Dibokim in September of 2020, I used the terminology sin, but I feel like people oftentimes interpret that differently. So I'm going to use the terms and the language of causing harm. There are clear steps for teshuva, and it begins with acknowledging and regretting the harm that has been caused, then forsaking the harm, an action that that brought it about, worrying about the future consequences of the action, acting and speaking with humility, acting in a way opposite to that of the sin or the action that caused harm. For example, the sin of lying, one would speak the truth. Understanding the magnitude of the sin, and this is not just for the action, but also for the the impact of it. Then it's refraining from lesser sins for the purpose of safeguarding oneself against creating greater ones or trying to cause as little harm as possible so that one doesn't cause greater harm in the future. Confessing to the harm, praying for atonement, and correcting the harm however possible. 
For example, if one stolen object, the stolen object must be returned. Or if one slanders another, the slanderer must go around correcting that misinformation. Remembering the harm and the action for the rest of one's life, you can't just say my bad and forget about it. You have to carry it with you and acknowledge what you've done and the impact it has long term. Then it's important to refrain from committing the same harm if the opportunity presents itself again. So if you are given that same opportunity, you would do better. And then there's also the importance of teaching others not to do the same thing you have done, not to cause the same amount of harm. So clearly it's a bit of an in-depth process. And having not completed these steps, the spirit, the dibbic, might fear the judgment that comes after death. And now the afterlife in Judaism is complicated and what we believe about the afterlife is also complicated. But the judgment, whether it ends up with um, cleansing as is most commonly believed in Judaism or some other life or experience after death um, is what is being referred to here. Unwilling or unable to perform teshuvah, these spirits become dibukim and must seek a host. They cannot exist without a body, so they have to seek out people to possess. Dibukim possess unsuspecting victims clinging to their humanity. Now, there are only a few stories of dibukim ever possessing or clinging to animals. I personally only know of two, one being a cat and one being a goat. Both are not well accepted in Jewish communities. Um, nor are they very credible. And in both stories, the Dybbuk only clung to a animal because they couldn't find a human in time. And for centuries, Jews have had practices to ward off Dybbukim. We avoid touching the dead. We bury the dead as quickly as possible. And it's even said that the tradition of placing rocks upon our graves was intended to keep the corpse and the spirit in the ground where they belonged. We also don't touch the dead. We also are very careful in cemeteries. And those are just a few of the ways we've been very careful to keep the spirits who have passed where they're meant to be. Even the name Dibbik is clear in its nature, as it's an abbreviation of a larger phrase, Dibbik mech ra, a cleavage of an evil spirit, or Dibbik min ha'itzonim, Dibbik from the outside, which is found in man. The act of the attachment of the spirit to the body became the name of the spirit itself. Remember, the root word is davok, to cleave. And that verb, davok, is found throughout Kabbalistic literature where it denotes the relationship between the evil spirit and the body. Where it literally is talking about how a malicious spirit can attach to one's humanity and human body. Now, documentation of the Bukim in Jewish communities goes back centuries. It has been documented that when possessed by a Dybbuk, the victim would often spew horrible, often lewd speeches uncommon for their host. They would cause great embarrassment and act in lascivious, immodest, and improper ways. Some would have problems entering their synagogues, holding or touching holy books, praying, talking with their rabbis, or interacting with pious members of their community. Previously well-mannered, pious people were suddenly vile, crude, and overtly sexual aggressors. In his 1981 book, Dybbuk, Rabbi Gershon Winkler defines the list on how to check for a Dybbuk possession. Number one, both the Dybbuk and the victim must remain conscious and coexist in the same body. The victim is typically distressed. The victim is more likely to be female than male. 
while the Dybbuk is more likely to be male than female, and special means are needed to expel the Dybbuk. And don't worry, we're going to some exorcisms. While we often think of Catholic imagery when discussing exorcism, it has existed as a practice in Judaism for a very long time, though it is not very commonly practiced today. Like we said, the Dybbuk has not completed Teshuvah and is afraid to transition and move on. But they also know that they are inhabiting a body that is not their own. It is this co-cognizance that allows for an exorcism to take place. It is most important to communicate directly with the Dybbuk. I had a great mutual on Twitter once refer to it as sad ghost therapy. There is a text written by the famous Kabbalist Rabbi Shalom Sharabi in the 18th century. The text itself is believed to have come from Egypt or Palestine, but the text not only discusses a dibbik, but outlines how a dibbik was exercised from a woman within the community. Now, the young woman was possessed by the spirit of departed husband or her husband-to-be, it's not entirely clear. And the ritual was documented by first her saying prayers and then having the prayers repeated back by a group of rabbis. Now, we do see significance in this not only in exorcism, but also in the fact that for quite a while, it was believed that it would, Dibukim were only recognized by Ashkenazi Jews. And this is just not true. We have evidence of this. And scholar Yoram Bilou, however, believes that Dibukim were actually found first within Sephardic communities before being integrated into Ashkenazi culture. Now, the steps to a exorcism are pretty easy, and I say that entirely sarcastically. Um, the first and most important step was making sure the possessed person was not merely suffering from a psychotic episode, depression, sleep deprivation, or any other physical or emotional symptoms. And I think this is pretty important because when we look at most discussions of exorcisms, People are not necessarily going, you know what the real problem is? Mental health. Now, even in these days, uh, Jews were very quick to go check to make sure it was not a mental or a physical problem before going to the supernatural. They really kept with the mundane over magical line of, of belief. Once it was established that the victim was not suffering from mental health crisis, but rather something else, a minion, which is a group of 10 Jewish adults, but it was typically men, would gather after preparing themselves through fasting and immersion in a mikveh or a ritual bath. Now, there is some precedence to anointing oneself in oil before being clothed in white and wearing talit, which are prayer shawls, and tefillin, which are phylacteries. The group would then gather to expel the dibbik from its host, typically in a synagogue, though it didn't have to be. The exorcist, who does not need to be a rabbi, but rather a person with a deep relationship with the divine or God and is a pious, well-intentioned, well-meaning, good person, would then speak directly to the Dybbuk. Part of this includes listing the sins in life, but it's also important to note that one of the most important parts of a Dybbuk exorcism was knowing the Dybbuk's names. You can communicate directly with them. Like mentioned by Rabbi Sharabi, like I mentioned earlier, oftentimes the Dybbuk was known to the person it possessed. Now, it was also known that a Magid or a spiritual guide or an angelic teacher could be invoked in order to remove uh, and to aid in the removal of the Dybbuk. A Magid was known to take over the body of the exerciser and could trigger automatic writing or xenoglossia or otherwise aid in this. So we can see here an example of a positive possession 
directly next to a very negative possession. Now, the goal of exorcism was to find a means of expelling the Dybbuk as well as aiding the Dybbuk in crossing over. In order to successfully complete this, the name is needed. And while, yes, a lot of times they did know them, if they couldn't find out their name, they would use smoke or sulfur to try and coax it out of them. Lurianic Kabbalah believed that the exorcism of the Dybbuk must include the tikkun, or repair, of their soul. The Lurianic methodology required communication directly with the Dybbuk and negotiations regarding their soul. The quote-unquote good parts of the soul of the Dybbuk were separated from the quote-unquote bad parts of the soul and returned to the treasury of souls. And once the bad or evil parts no longer had a place to thrive, they would shrivel up and die, eventually leaving this world. While the specificity of this methodology is Lurianic, much of its concept remained in other forms of exorcism. Essentially, the Dybbuk must be coaxed from its victim and successfully helped across the divide and leave this plane of existence. A lot of the records we have of Dybbukim show them to be not entirely evil, more so lashing out. Remember, these are people who did not perform teshuva in their lives, so while, yes, they did horrible things and did not repent for them, they weren't necessarily solely evil demonic beings. They were spirits who were often lost and frightened and afraid. And so these exorcisms were not only to remove them from their victim, but to help them cross over, leaves the body from the same place it entered. So the fingers, the toes, though it was also seen that the throat, vagina, or rectum was a common place of entry. Now it was believed that the Dibuk, this also plays into the fact that it was often seen as a overtly sexual and misogynistic act on the part of certain Dibukim, as they were more likely male than female. Now, it was often recorded there would be bloody fingernails or toes, and that as soon as the Dibuk was released, there would be a huge change in the personality of the victim. Now, while you're probably common with the consistent flailing about of the exorcisms you've seen online, the only time convulsions or flailing happened would be during the entering and the exiting of the body as the body tried to return to homeostasis. Now, it is important to note that exorcisms are rarely performed in modern Jewish communities, but both the successes and failure rates were well discussed historically. To quote Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis, reports of misadventures were virtually non-existent in the Catholic tradition. Jews, as always, are highly self-critical. So yes, we did discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of Dybbuk exorcism, those that were successful and those that were not so. So as we've discovered, throughout centuries of knowledge and study and just general awareness of Dybbukim, we have yet to see any mention of a box. In his 1981 compendium of historical accounts, folkloric recollections, stories, mystical perceptions, and even a checklist to figure out if you've been possessed by a Dybbuk, there is absolutely no mention of a Dybbuk box. Why can people buy them on eBay? How and why did this massive confusion come to be. It's like saying that a perfume bottle is actually a centaur. That's not what it does. How is there this weird cursed item out there? And what about all those fakes that came after it? Let's talk about it now. And 
let's honestly debunk it. In 2003, an eBay listing appeared featuring the world's first, but certainly not last, Dybbuk box. Kevin Manis posted the box along with a harrowing tale. Now, the story has changed and shifted over the years, but I'll give you the consistent rundown, the one you could find on the average post before he, quote-unquote, cleared it up recently. This is what you would see in most articles or compiled by people trying to get the story straight, despite it ever changing. Essentially, in 2001, he purchased the Dybbuk box from the daughter or granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, either at auction, at a yard sale, or at a garage sale. He claimed that she was the only survivor of the concentration camps in her family. She witnessed the death of her husband, her parents, her aunts, her uncles, her siblings, and even her children. And when she survived, she fled to Spain. In Spain, she either found, purchased, or reconnected with this cursed Dybbuk box. And when she eventually immigrated to the United States, it was one of only three possessions she brought with her. When Kevin bought it, he was warned by the daughter or the granddaughter at that point to never open the Dybbuk box. This is what he heard, apparently. He obviously opened it. He bought it and he opened it which, I mean, that makes sense. Inside it, he found two U.S. wheat pennies dating back to 1925 and 1928, two locks of hair bound with twine, one blonde, one brown, a single dried rosebud, a golden goblet for wine, a granite sculpture inscribed with the Hebrew word shalom, and strangest of all, an octopus-leg-shaped candlestick. On the back of the box, which he called a wine box, was carved the Shema, which is considered one of the most important prayers in Judaism. Along with a very detailed description of the woman's Holocaust story, he also touted with it an incredible, beautifully woven story of misfortune that includes homes burning to the ground eyes bleeding spontaneously, bank accounts draining of money, full heads of hair falling out overnight, his mother even having a stroke when coming in contact with it, and he even included included suicide in the list of side effects of this horribly haunted box. So he naturally sold it on eBay. Um, The box switched hands a couple times, landing in the hands of a man named Haxton, who wrote a book on it, Um, but then it eventually made its way into the Haunted Museum, owned by Zach Baggins, or Baggins, I'm not entirely sure how it's pronounced, where it is still being exploited to this day. That is also how we get the Post Malone connection to this story. So let's talk about the box, because pretty importantly... It is not a wine box. Kenny Biddle of the Skeptical Inquirer has found that it is not, as Manis originally claimed, a Spanish wine box, but rather a mini bar from the 50s. He even got himself one. He even found down to the patent number. This was not a wine box. But him being a Skeptical Inquirer did not assuage the masses' desire 
to have this story be true. In 2012, the American horror movie The Possession was released, and it was based on the Dybbuk box. It is also supposedly true that both Manus and Haxton, previous owners of the box, and Manus being the creator of the Dybbuk box, were paid for their aid in creating the movie. The release of the 2012 film only continued to help the Dybbuk box rise to fame and notoriety, even claiming the title of the world's most haunted object. In 2015, however, Kevin Manis went on a rant in a now-deleted Facebook post saying the following, I am the original creator of the story of the Dybbuk box, which appeared as one of my eBay posts back in 2003. The idea that Dybbuk boxes have some kind of history prior to my story and the idea that a Dybbuk box could contain anything other than a Dybbuk, along with any deviation to the type of contents I created to be found inside of a Dybbuk box, is laughable at best. How about this? If you or anyone else can find any reference to a Dybbuk box anywhere in history prior to my eBay post, I'll pay you $100,000 and tattoo your name on my forehead but a confession to making it up, to creating the box, to putting in weird objects to make it seem spooky. It just wasn't enough. Paranormal investigators in particularly exploited the idea of Dybbuk boxes, and in 2018, rapper Post Malone claimed he was cursed by a Dybbuk. He went to visit the famed box containing a quote-unquote, demon with the so-called expert Zach Baggins. Baggins reportedly touched the box while Malone had a hand on his shoulder. So Post Malone did not even touch the Dybbuk box. He was touching someone who was touching the Dybbuk box, and he was supposedly cursed. Now, like we've already discussed, Dibukim are possessing spirits, so if anything, he would have gotten possessed because Dibukim don't, don't curse you which again also goes against the whole premise of the box. But hey, people believed him because after Man- after Malone had this interaction with the Dybbuk box, he had a pretty bad string of luck. His private plane was forced to land after the tires were blown off. His Rolls Royce was involved in a devastating car crash and a house that was believed to belong to him was attacked and robbed by armed robbers, or attempted to be robbed. And so people immediately said, Post Malone has been cursed by the Dybbuk box. In episodes where rabbis were brought in to discuss Dybbuk boxes, they were cut off and sent away before they could fully explain that this is all a little bit ridiculous and makes just as much sense as, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have anything as ridiculous as this to me. A center in a nail polish jar? A mermaid possessing a hairbrush? That kind of thing. But Dybbuk boxes are hugely lucrative. It is a massive, massive market. When you Google Dybbuk, you are most likely going to find active listings on Facebook Marketplace, Etsy, eBay, trying to sell you active and authentic Dybbuk boxes. Normally, they will slather them in different kinds of waxes. They'll place little charms in them, and they'll carve terrible, 
terrible Hebrew into them, trying to convince you that they're real. I personally find it funniest when they include Christian imagery because that just, you're lazy. Do your research just a little bit more. But maybe you'll actually find a paranormal investigator on YouTube who's using a little radio to communicate with the Dybbuk inside. Or maybe they're even claiming that they can transition the Dybbuk or the Dybbuk can try and possess them from it. And even maybe there's a TikToker trying to claim claim 60 seconds of fame. There's one Etsy shop owner, however, who makes quite a great living off of selling quote-unquote authentic Dybbuk boxes. But don't worry, her grandfather was a pastor who was very well-versed in exorcisms, so when she makes a box that plays up the quote-unquote Jewishness of it by strapping an image, a, a figurine, of an Orthodox Jewish rabbi holding a Torah, it's okay. That horrifying craft project featuring a figurine of a rabbi listed under the terminology evil rabbi strapped to an active possessive demon sold for $85 on Etsy. If you go to eBay, you can find them easily in the thousands the hundreds. And generally, they will use anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes to promote these. And it's not uncommon to use anti-Semitic tropes and misinformation about Judaism for money and profit and fame. In early 2021, a paranormal YouTuber went viral on TikTok for opening up a Dybbuk box. Their second video was meant to clear up confusion But instead, they just continued the rampant spread of misinformation. To quote them, people are spreading misinformation about what a Dybbuk box actually is. A Dybbuk box in Jewish folklore is a dislocated spirit that has been placed inside of a box with ceremonial items in order to exercise an individual. When I called them out for how ridiculous this was, They got extremely defensive and angry. They doubled down, refusing to delete the videos that got millions of views. They eventually started using anti-Semitic language to respond to Jews who were rightfully calling them out for this exploitation and distortion of our culture, folklore, and mythology. I was eventually blocked after I asked them to stop calling it a Dybbuk box. They made another video clarifying that while they had lots of demon boxes, they only had one real Dybbuk box, and it was a real one because it had shalom carved into the back. Despite the fact that they were saying that Jews would put dislocated spirits in boxes using ritualistic items, though I truly cannot imagine why we would need to put American pennies, hair, and octopus-shaped candle holders into a box for an exorcism. I cannot fathom that. People lapped it up. There was absolutely no reason why they wouldn't believe her. They had a massive following. And what they were saying was appealing. The public trusts their favorite paranormal investigators, witches, lightworkers, spiritualists, spirit workers. And when they say that these boxes contain the spirits of the dead, or dislocated spirits, or even Jewish demons, people believe them. The public wanted nothing more than to not believe Jews 
when we said, this makes no sense and I get you're having fun, but you're hurting us with it. And they would constantly use the initial story told by Kevin Manis as a reason for this. But no longer. On the 8th of July, Input put out an article that includes a full confession from Kevin Manis. I am a creative writer, he says. The Dybbuk Box is a story that I created. And the Dybbuk Box story has done exactly what I intended it to do when I posted it 20 years ago. In 2001, Kevin Manis was buying supplies for his furniture restoration business. And he bought the wine cabinet, which again is a mini bar, from an attorney at a yard sale, not from a Holocaust survivor. The carving of the Shema on the back, the people so lauded as authentic, was carved in by Manis. He also says, the stone that was in the box is something that is a signature creation of mine also. Make no mistake, I conceived the Dybbuk box, the name, the term, the idea, and wrote this creative story around it to post on eBay. So because of this article, which was only released on on July 8th, we have the truth, a truth that the Jewish community has always known and has had to fight to have recognized. And it is no wonder that people are so comfortable disregarding Jewish folklore and practice when what they are exposed to is a demented, demonized version of the truth. So taken and extracted from where it belongs that it is barely recognizable. Kevin Manis's 2015 post proves to be true, though he denied it. Like he said then, He is the one who curated the contents of the Dybbuk box. And Charles Moss, the journalist who wrote for Input Magazine, confirmed that he had created every item there. He had verified with two of Manis's friends, Kurt Morris and Matthew Shaggy Christensen, who had worked with Manis at the time, that the hair in the Dybbuk box belonged to Christensen. It may not have been Manis's intention, but impact over intention, always. When his mother did interviews on Paranormal Witness, Manis said that it was an outstanding bit of motherly support and an Oscar-winning performance. And while she did have a stroke, it was not because of the Dybbuk box. Because again, he made the Dybbuk box up. It shouldn't have taken nearly 20 years to confess this truth. When Manis was on Ghost Adventures Quarantine, he told another part of this ghost story, which, like I mentioned in the beginning, has been ever-evolving. Now, the Holocaust survivor, who we know not to exist, has a name. Her name is Havela, though, as we know, she doesn't actually exist. But he continued to tell the story, which he swore was true, that Havela, along with a few other Jewish women, actually created 10 Dybbuk boxes. You see, they had been trying to summon an evil spirit to help the Jews fight against the Nazis during the Holocaust, but they couldn't control this evil spirit that they had summoned. So the spirit was eventually put into 10 separate Dybbuk boxes that could never come together because it would unleash evil like the world had never seen. 
He claimed that Havela, again, the fictional Holocaust survivor, thinks that the Dybbuk caused the, some of the world's greatest disasters, including the Korean War. Now, I don't feel like I have to expand too much on why this is a horrific narrative, particularly because for centuries, Jews have faced persecution and oppression because of our quote-unquote so-called connection with the devil and with evil. During the Black Plague, Jews were accused of evil sorcery because Jewish communities supposedly had lower rates of infection at the time. Did the Christians think that maybe it's because Jews were forced to live in ghettos and ritually washed our hands and bathed far often and had our own wells? No, they accused us of sorcery and of poisoning their wells. There is centuries worth of oppression and persecution of Jews that has not stopped. When I first talked about Dybbuk boxes on TikTok, people immediately were like, but what if it's actually haunted by something else? And my answer was, okay, maybe. Dibukim are just one of many different kinds of entities, even within Jewish folklore. There are so many different things. So yeah, do I think that maybe there could be some other thing? Sure. I don't know. But what I absolutely know for sure is that it's not a Dybbuk, just like it's also not a centaur or a vampire, or even an alligator. If there is something there, it has nothing to do with Jews. It has nothing to do with Judaism. And I'd very much appreciate if people left us out of this narrative. Now that we're ending the episode, I do want to cite some sources. So firstly, we have My Jewish Learning, thejc.com, manchester.ac.uk, Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism by Jeffrey W. Dennis. There's a fantastic JSTOR article linked in my blog post on jewishes.com in the blog post, The Deal with the Dybbuk. TheSkepticalInquirer.org. Kenny Biddle is great. JewishVirtualLibrary.com. And then, of course, the Input Magazine interview with Kevin Manis. Thank you all so much for listening. I am so excited to have this episode up. If you have any ideas for future episodes that you'd like to see or topics you want me to cover, please feel free to send them my way or drop me a message. I cannot wait to start including some messages in my podcast. Click that follow button, press like, and leave a review if you haven't yet. You can stay up to date with me on my Instagram, which is at Jewitches. Bye!